0: Well, good morning. morning. If you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Jonah. We're not going to look at one specific passage per se, but we're going to look at Jonah as a whole. And today we're focusing on the idea of tackling tough questions from Jonah. Some of these were submitted to me, and one of them I'll bring up for sure. So uh, before we do that, though, one thing I just encourage you to do is would you just take a moment and stretch in your seat for a second? was kind of this post-Easter haze or fog or whatever. (laughs) And the reason I'm doing that to get the blood pumping, blood flowing a little bit more too, because we're going to tackle some tough questions together. One of my buddies used to say, sometimes you just need some more intellectual firepower for the day. And that's what I need as I help with this topic. And that's what you'll need too as you listen. So let me pray and then we'll look at God's word together. Father, just thank you for the the great reminder that you are a consuming fire, Lord, that we're going to receive an unshakable kingdom through the ultimate king of kings, Jesus Christ. And Father, I just pray that we would be fully present. Lord, I pray that your spirit would move through the preaching of your word. I pray that our hearts would receive what your spirit wants us to receive. Lord, I pray that you would change us and mold us more and more into the image of Christ. And Lord, if there's someone here who doesn't know you, may this be the day that they are blown away by your offer of grace and mercy to them. Father, we commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to look at three questions today. Uh, The first question somebody asked me one time in the hallway about Jonah. It says this, in the New Testament, how are we to understand Jesus being three days and three nights in the heart of the earth? Uh, Because if you look at Matthew chapter 12, Matthew 12, 40, Jesus said, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So this question bothered that person, and it may bother you, because here's a question for you. Was Jesus literally in the grave for 72 full hours? The answer is? Let's try it again. The answer is? No, no, he wasn't. So why does Jesus say that? Was Jesus wrong? And the answer is, no, he wasn't wrong. Um, Just by the Jewish way of reckoning things in in Bible times, um, they would count any part of a day as a full day. So since Jesus died on a Friday night, that was one day in the grave. And then Jesus was in the grave Saturday, that's two days. And then Jesus rose on Sunday, that being the the third day. So in the Jewish reckoning of things, it works out just fine. And then uh, question number two, and I think this was from one of the balcony people that gave me this question, so... uh, (laughs) They have questions too. Um, Question two, is Jonah a false prophet? And the reason this question came up, because if you look at Jonah chapter three, Jonah three verse four, when Jonah goes and preaches, he says this to the city of Nineveh, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. So was Nineveh literally overthrown by God? And the answer is no. So Jonah's words did not come true. Thus, is he a false prophet? No, someone said no. He's not a false prophet. Thank you. He's not. And here's why, biblically, because in Jeremiah, <laughs> don't just take my word for it. Take the Bible's word. Uh, Jeremiah 18, um, Jeremiah, God speaking through Jeremiah says this, If at any time I, God, announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation I warn repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. So Jonah warns of incoming disaster... And they repent, and thus God relents. And then, and if at another time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I had intended to do for it. So is Jonah a false prophet? The answer is no. But now let's get to question number three. This is the last question. This will occupy me the whole time. And it's a really hard question. It really is. This is what I was talking about, some intellectual firepower that's going to take for us. And I know some of you were at prom late last night. If you need to slap yourself a few times, I understand, to stay awake. Whatever helps you to focus right now as we focus on this very important topic, not just in Jonah, but in all of Scripture. And let me introduce the topic by looking at some verses from Jonah. In Jonah 1, verse 17, it says this, Now the Lord provided or really appointed a huge fish to swallow Jonah, And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So God caused a fish to come up, swallow Jonah. And then you get to chapter four, and it uses that similar word provided again. Then the Lord God provided or appointed a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. Then it says in verse seven, but at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided, there it is again, a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. So we see God providing and appointing a fish, a worm, a plant, a wind. I mean, Jonah pictures God as this incredibly awesome God who is sovereign. It means he's in control and he's king. He is planning and doing all things. In fact, he's in control of cities like Nineveh that if Jonah just goes and preaches five words, they repent, He's in control of Jonah's life. And yet at the same time, even though God is massively in control, he still holds us responsible and accountable for our decisions. Even though God wasn't surprised by what Jonah did, he still had Jonah accountable for what he did and the fact that he didn't obey, and then he did obey. So here's the question put on screen. How does God's sovereignty, his control, fit with our responsibility, or you might use the term, free will? are you ready for this question? (laughs) Can I see a show of hands? How many have ever wrestled with this question at some level as they've read the Bible, as they've talked with people? I know I have. I still wrestle with it. I'm going to try to answer this question, but before I do, I want you to get a little bit uncomfortable with how Scripture talks about God's sovereignty. I think that Scripture presents God as being sovereign over our entire lives, over little things, over bad things, And what does number four say? Even sin. sin. That's where it gets uncomfortable, especially with number three and four. Let me show you some scriptures that back this up. So if God is sovereign over our entire lives, Psalm 139, this is King David saying, all the days ordained for me were written in your, that's God's book, before one of them came to be. Do you believe that here this morning? That this day was written in God's book, what you would do before it came to be, according to King David in scripture. The fact that you're here was written about it. The fact that I'm here doing this, preaching, was written about it in God's book. God is sovereign over our entire lives. Or look at the second one. God is even sovereign over little things. It says in Proverbs 16:33, the lot that's like spiritual dice is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from whom? The Lord. Or Matthew 10:29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. So even when a poor little birdie falls to the ground and dies, this all happens according to God's plan. God is also sovereign. This gets a little bit more uncomfortable over bad things. These are really troubling verses, I have to admit. Amos 3:6, the Lord says this: when disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? Or Isaiah 45. 6 and 7, I am the Lord and there is no other. I bring prosperity and I create, what's the word there? Disaster. Disaster. That word could also be evil. I, the Lord, do these things. I mean, it's graduation time. Are you going to put that verse in a graduation card for a graduate? <laughs> <laughs> you laugh, but we often quote Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares Lord. What a great verse. We don't often quote these verses. Number four gets even more troubling. I believe God is so sovereign that he's even in control over sin. And this is Genesis 50, verse 20, where Joseph is talking. This is the same Joseph that was sold into slavery in Egypt, where his brothers faked his death, and he eventually, in God's plan, arose to the second in command in Egypt. And this is what Joseph tells his brothers when he's reunited with them. He says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Some translations say what man intended for evil, God intended for good. So what I'm trying to say is that God is sovereign over our lives, over little things, bad things, even sin. And this verse just really summarizes it. Ephesians 1.11, God works out how much? Everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. So scripture presents God as a God who is thoroughly in control, comprehensively in control. He is affecting and causing all things I mean just read the book of Daniel and you see God is through Daniel prophesying what nations would be world powers before they came to be. Just read the book of Revelation, you see that God is so thorough that he knows what's going to happen as he draws all things to a close under Christ. So I'm going to try to answer this question, how does our how does God's sovereignty fit with our free will or responsibility? And before I answer that too, this is still by way of introduction by the way. A couple of things that you have to understand with this is that you and I have to admit that I cannot cover everything about this in one sermon, or we're going to be here till like five o'clock tonight, which I'm fine with, if, you know, that's cool. <laughs> um, somebody needs to order pizza, but we'll be fine. <laughs> but it, it takes a while. The second thing I want to say too is we all go into subjects, like controversial subjects, with some bias and assumptions when we look at this. None of us come from a blank slate. In fact, you may go into this hoping that Scripture is not as thorough as on God's sovereignty as I'm saying. You know, I, I've often done that in my past when I'm reading Scripture for controversial things. I want Scripture to say something. I come in biased hoping that Scripture will say something that confirms my bias. We do this all the time. You read social media. You often agree with people who are like you. We want, we have a bias. Just recognize that. You're going into this bias probably one way or the other. And then finally, recognize that it just takes some time to understand this. For me, this has been a 20-year process to where I am today to understand this. It's difficult. This is a journey. So I will have succeeded. If, if you go away from this confused, I understand that. But if you go away saying, you know what, I'm just going to look in Scripture for myself to see what it says about what Pastor Rick is saying, that's a win. I want you to go into Scripture and wrestle with these huge doctrines yourself from the Bible itself. So let's go. Are you ready for the answer? Are you ready? One person is. So God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, how do they mesh? Here we go. I'm going to try to answer this in a few ways. I'm going to try to put these statements together, and then I'm going to give some examples of how they mesh in Scripture, and then I'm going to try to respond to some objections that you may have or be thinking about. So here's the statements, two statements that I think Scripture teaches. Statement number one, God is absolutely... Sovereign, meaning he's in control fully, but his sovereignty never lessens or minimizes or takes away our responsibility. God is absolutely in control, yet we are still 100% responsible for the choices and decisions we make. Are you with me? And then statement number two is very similar to it. We are morally responsible creatures we choose, we think, we feel, we do. We make choices for good or bad. Choose this day whom you will serve, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We do that all the time. But God is not dependent on our choices. It's not like God is waiting around hoping, man, I hope Pastor Max just does this. And if he does not oh my goodness, oh, I didn't see it coming. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for letting me pick on you, Pastor Max. I appreciate that. (laughs) God is not waiting around at us. He's not on pins and needles hoping we do something or not. He knows it's going to happen. He is not dependent on our morally responsible choices. And so what I'm trying to tell you today, if you believe both of these statements, you are a compatibilist. They are compatible. It's what's called compatibilism. Say that with me. Compatibilism. That God's sovereignty and our free will or our responsibility are compatible. Even though we don't know how, and I'm going to try to explain to you how in some way, even though I don't fully know how, they are compatible. And this is what scripture teaches. So it's not like God is 100% in charge and we are 0% responsible. It's not like it's 50-50 or 80-20. It is God is 100% in charge and we are 100% responsible for our decisions. So put that together mathematically and logically. (laughs) It's hard. (laughs) I mentioned earlier, if I, if I force you to go back to scripture in your spare time, I will have succeeded. In fact, I was thinking about this all week because our sweet Amelia, who's almost two, in one of the classes, she's learning that great song, the B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. But, but she says it like this, the B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. Bible. You know, so that's exactly what I want you to be doing all week is being the Bible, the B-I-B-L-E. So let's look at some examples from scripture that will try to prove these statements The first example I have is Pharaoh, 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 oh baby, let my people go. King of Egypt (laughs) from the book of Exodus that Moses confronted. And look at what these two verses say, Exodus 8.32, but this time also, Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not let the people go. So pop quiz church, who hardened his heart in this verse? Pharaoh. Let's try it again. Who hardened his heart? I'm not trying to trick you, I promise. Just look at, yeah, it's okay. The next verse, Exodus 10, 27, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he was not willing to let them go. So according to this verse, who hardened Pharaoh's heart? What's the answer? The Lord. Lord. So if you read the book of Exodus over several chapters, it'll go back and forth. Pharaoh hardened his heart. The Lord hardened his heart. Pharaoh did. The Lord did. So who ultimately hardened Pharaoh's heart? And the answer is Both. (laughs) This is compatibilism. God is sovereign, yet he's responsible. Let's go to another example. Judas. You probably thought about Judas last week with Good Friday and Easter. Here's what Jesus says about Judas. The son of man, that's Jesus, goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So Jesus is saying there is a plan for him to go to the cross. This is ordained by God the Father. Every little piece that happened to Jesus was planned, including Judas betraying him. It was written about him to happen that way. So God is absolutely in control, but Judas is still responsible. Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So God is sovereign, and we are still responsible. Let's go to the next one. This is a Philippians 2 example. This is what Paul tells us in the Philippian church. He says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So that's our responsibility. You and I are to work out our salvation. But then we see God's sovereignty in verse 13, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So when you're working out your salvation, who's doing it? Is it you or is it God or is it both? I wish I could give you more examples, but this is some homework for you. Read about Jacob in the book of Genesis, all the dumb choices he made, yet this wasn't a surprise to God. God worked through it. Read about Joseph in the book of Genesis. Read about the nation of Assyria in Isaiah. That's Isaiah chapter 10, where God uses them to humble the Israelites, yet God holds Assyria accountable for how they did it. So God is sovereign, yet we are responsible. I mean, we see this all through Scripture, example after example, that God is sovereign, yet we are responsible for our decisions. So before I look at the objections, I know this may be confusing some people, but remember, I'm trying to just make sense of what the Bible is saying. This has bothered me for quite some time, too, so if it bothers you, you're a good company. Scripture presents both of these ideas. But there are some really practical, there's a practical way to to understand this, that this really isn't that foreign of an idea, How many of you are a leader in some way in your life? Maybe you're a parent, captain of your team, a coach, teacher, a boss. As a boss, you have a plan for your group, hopefully you have a plan, right, that you want to see happen in your organization or team. So you are in somewhat in control, somewhat. But then you also want the people under you to follow that plan willingly, correct? So you're in control to some degree, yet they are freely choosing to follow. You're playing. That's good leadership. That's that's good parenting, really. So even though that's not a perfect analogy, at some level we can see that this kind of makes sense, even though we don't have the same level of control that God does for sure. So let's go to the objections. The really fun part. Why don't you just stretch one more time? Because this is when it gets this is when you really need your intellectual firepower, okay? Prom people, slap yourself a few times, that's okay. Yep. So the first objection, I have four. What about free will, Schwartz? If God is sovereign, I don't see how our choices have any real meaning. And many have pushed back from this, on that, with me. And I will say that I am not a philosopher. I read that stuff, and it gets whew, gets confusing. But I will try to answer this as a pastor and theologian, and hopefully at a street level. So, when you think about free will, one of the tricky things is if I said, I want you to define free will in a sentence, could you actually do it? If I gave you that assignment, I'm just going to give you a couple minutes with your partner. You'll quickly understand that that is way harder to do than you realize. What, is, what does it really mean to be free? Let me give you three angles that we, or three senses that we often use when we talk about free will. Uh, the first sense or angle is the street level or popular sense of free will. When people complain about having free will or not, I think this is what they mean that if God is so in control, I don't want to be a puppet or a robot. It seems like God is just pulling all the strings and none of my decisions matter. Does that make sense? At a street level, I think that's what most people mean. So when people ask that question, well, Pastor Rick, am I really free? I think that's what they're saying at a street level. And my answer to that in that sense is, yes, I do think you're free because you are still acting according to your own desires and preferences. So yes, God's in control, but even when you make a choice, stay with me here, you're still acting according to your desires and your preferences. So even if you're an unbeliever, you are acting in accordance with your desire not to follow Christ. John 3 says, men loved darkness more than light. That's why their deeds were evil, because they chose that path. And the same is true as a believer. If you are following Christ, your preferences, the Holy Spirit has enabled you to follow Christ. So I would say the Bible does talk about freedom in that sense that our choices are real, they are meaningful, they're free, and that we always do what we want to do. So that's the street level. You still with me? Let's go to another level, the biblical level. Does the Bible ever use the term free will in it? Some of you are really thinking. The answer is, No, I don't think so. The Bible doesn't talk about our will being free, but it does use that word freedom and free all the time. It talks about people being free versus our will, people. And biblically speaking, if you are in sin and not following Christ, you are not free. You're in slavery, the Bible says. Even though you're doing what you want to do, you're free in that street-level sense, you are not free in a biblical sense. You're actually in bondage. You're in slavery to sin. And at some level, I think we get this because if you're addicted to something, a substance, you know that it just has its grip on you. It's like you can't get out. Sin is often like that. But when you follow Christ, remember what John 8 says, if the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you what? Free. Galatians 5.1, it is for freedom that Christ has set us Free. So even though you're under his sovereignty and control, when you come from darkness to light to following God, you are the most free, biblically speaking. Even though God's in control, when you're doing what God designed you to do and made you to do to follow him, that's when you are free. And some of you know what I'm talking about even from your experience. When you follow Christ, your chains fell off, your heart was free, you rose henceforth and you followed thee. I mean, you know exactly what I'm talking about. That is the main way the Bible talks about freedom, in my opinion. It talks about we are most free when we are slaves to Christ, ironically. Because we're doing what God made us to do, amen? Then there's one more sense. So that was the street level sense, we're following our desires, we're free in that sense. The biblical sense, when we follow Christ, we're free. And then here's, I don't know what to call this, maybe a technical sense or maybe you're just troubled. Because some people are really still troubled by this because even if I'm free to follow my desires, who is the ultimate determiner Of my destiny? Who has the final say in my life? Who is ultimately controlling every single thing? And according to the Bible, the answer is not you or me. It's God. So, in this third sense, we are not free like people want because God is absolutely in control and He is controlling everything. I mentioned a lot of verses before, but one verse that's always shown this it says, The king's heart, this is Proverbs 21. The king's heart is like a stream of water directed by the Lord. He guides it wherever he chooses. So this really bothers us because here's how one pastor says it. When man's agency and God's agency are compared, both are real. We both act and do, but God is always decisive. And this is where the mystery rubs us. This is what causes us to stumble. God is always decisive, yet our freedom is still real and we are responsible. How many are confused after this one? (laughs) Mm -hmm. I told the first service, just come to the second service. I have no other thing to recommend to you other than just listen to the sermon again or talk to me later. (laughs) But I want to go to the second objection. What about suffering and evil? And this gets really personal. Because if you're saying, Pastor Rick, that God is so in control, then why did he allow this to happen? Why did he plan for this to happen in my life or someone's life? This is where the rubber really meets the road. Is God so in control that he causes it, plans evil to happen? Let me try to answer this as best as I can in a short time, because it's hard. This gets really tricky because the Bible says God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Proverbs 6, God hates sin. There's six things that God hates, seven things he detests. The book of 2 Peter says God desires that all repent and come to repentance, but the question remains, not all do. So why does God allow suffering and evil and people to perish? The answer is, you ready for this? We don't know, ultimately, why. But here's, what, here's how one theologian puts it. That's helpful for me, and I'll give it to you. Scripture nowhere shows God as directly doing anything evil. So he doesn't directly do it, but he brings about evil deeds through the willing actions of moral creatures and nations, in addition, Scripture never blames God for evil or shows God as taking pleasure in evil, and Scripture never excuses us for the wrong we do. We can't just blame God when we do evil. However we understand God's relationship to evil, we must never come to the point where we think that we are not responsible for the evil we've done, or we can never blame God for evil that happens, even though he is behind it. So did you hear that? We can never blame God for evil, yet he is behind it. And that's always bothered me. I've always thought, that's so convenient, God. You know, it's, uh, you're behind it. You can't be blamed for it. But that's how Scripture talks about it. Remember what I said? If you're confused, go back to Scripture. If you can find a better explanation, I'm all ears. But I think that God is behind it in such a way that even though He planned it, you might say caused it, He's not to blame for it. Let's go to objection number three. I'll come back to number two in a second. What about prayer and evangelism? This is where it really meets the road too. If God is really in control, why pray? Why evangelize? God knows it's gonna happen. You ever wrestle with this? Well, I can't answer this fully now, but I have found that God being in control actually encourages you to do both. Because think of your prayer life. Do you ever pray prayers like, God, heal this person now in the name of Jesus. God, intervene in this person's life. Help them to come to salvation. God, do this. Do this in our president's life, our nation's life, our world. God, do this. Do you know how you're praying? You're praying as if God is really in control, which I'm telling you he is. (laughs) We do this already. If God were not in control, why pray? God, I hope you can do something here. God, I hope you can help. I mean, we pray already with this in mind. Even though we don't understand how God plans our prayers and God works through our prayers and his plan, this should be a massive encouragement to pray, knowing that he can actually do something when you pray. And the same is true in evangelism. How many of you are fishermen in our congregation, or fisherwomen? How many of you like to fish every once in a while? Okay, a few of you. When you fish, what do you hope to catch? It's not, yeah, fish. See, I'm not trying to trick you. And you like to fish, and, and fishing is the most fun, is it not, when you're actually catching fish? When something's actually happen, happening? happening. Yeah. Well, the same is true in evangelism. When you evangelize, you want to evangelize hoping to catch people. And evangelism is the most fun. I mean, you're supposed to do it either way when people are responding. Well, if God is really in control of the human heart, that gives us hope that when we share the gospel and talk to people about Christ, that God can actually do something, that we can actually catch fish when we evangelize. Here's another homework passage for you. I know I'm just throwing out a lot, but Acts 18 Acts 18 verses 9 to 11, God will actually encourage Paul to stay in the city of Corinth, and the main reason is Paul, don't leave, even though they're suffering, because I have many people in this city. So he's basically saying, you're going to go fishing, and you're going to catch people with the gospel. So Paul stayed for a year and a half. The last objection, there could be more. What if I still don't like this, Pastor Rick? (laughs) I'll admit I haven't liked this at times still makes me uncomfortable. Even to preach it, it's uncomfortable. What if I don't like this doctrine? What if I don't like what I'm finding in scripture? Well, first of all, thank you for being honest. Second, an illustration that's helped me. When you read the Bible, do you think the Bible should agree with everything you think it should say? Should the Bible just confirm what you already think and know? And the answer is no. It should push back a little bit, shouldn't it? There's two movies that came out, I have not seen them, but they're called Stepford Wives. And the main plot of the movie is the husbands of Stepford, Connecticut, decide to have their wives turned into robots who never cross their wills and always say yes. A Stepford wife was wonderfully compliant and beautiful. Now, would you describe that kind of marriage as a real, intimate, personal relationship? No. We joke about a spouses, man, if my spouse just said yes all the time, oh, if my wife or my husband just did what I want to do all the time, you know, we, we joke about that, half serious. But if you had a spouse like that or a friend like that, is that a real relationship? No. If you have a real relationship with someone, especially the deeper you go, you know that they push back, they disagree. In fact, that's healthy. I mean, my wife and I, I think of our relationship, we disagree on how to load the dishwasher. <laughs> <laughs> She's right, of course, let the record stand, that she is always right with that. But even if something's silly like that, and we have a real good relationship, should that, not, should that not mean that with God that he can push back even more? If we actually have a God of the Bible, a God who's all in control and all powerful, shouldn't reading the Bible trouble us at times? I know those passages from Amos and Isaiah. I looked at those probably 50 times this week, it seemed like God creates disaster and calamity. That troubled me all week. You see, if we have a God who's bigger than us, we're not going to understand every single thing about him. For instance, how many of you can fully explain the Trinity? God is one as to essence, yet he is three as to persons. Yet we don't believe in three gods, nor do we believe in strict what's called monotheism, but he's one in three. Got it? Jesus, he is 100% man and 100% God. He's both at the same time. If you can explain that, you should be up here, not me. I mean, there's mystery in that. And the Bible gives us enough information to know that God is absolutely in control, yet we are still responsible for our decisions, and we just don't know how it all fits together, logically. Yet we have to be okay with it, I think. Because God is God, and we're not. I want to close with this thought Because what ultimately helped me in all of this, like I don't have all the answers in this. Remember the B-I-B-L-E does. But what really helped me is the cross. When I think about compatibilism, I see this in the cross. So look, Acts 2, Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost. And he's telling them, this man Jesus was handed over to you by what? By God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. So it was God's plan. He was in control. It wasn't a surprise. And yet you, you're responsible. You did it. You, with the help of wicked men, you put him to death by nailing him to the cross. God is sovereign, yet we're responsible. Again, it shows up in Acts 4. It says, indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate, so they're praying, the disciples, they met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city, Jerusalem, to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. So there it is again. Herod, Pontius Pilate, the people of Israel and Gentiles, they are responsible for killing Jesus, yet this is all God's plan. They mesh together. You know, ultimately what helped me in this thought is even though I don't understand why we go through suffering or why God is allowing certain things in your life, because I know that as I look out, I know some of your stories, some of you are going through massive suffering, and you have these kind of questions, why God, why are you allowing this, what are you doing? And the answer is we don't know but I do know that God loves you very much. I do know that we can trust a God who's this massively in control because of the cross. If we have a God who doesn't just look down on us, but actually takes on flesh and lives among us, he lives with a poor family, Mary and Joseph. He works a blue-collar job as a construction worker. He dies a horrible death for us, for our sin. On the cross, nails and blood and sweat and tears, He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If we have a God like that, can we not trust him, even though we don't understand him at times? I mean, he's what theologians call our suffering sovereign. So he's not just in control and aloof. He is near. He is intimate. He's personal. He loves you. Would you bow your heads and pray with me right now? Father, I pray right now that this doctrine even though it can be unsettling, I also pray that it would be massively encouraging and hopeful. Lord, if you were not in control, Lord, the other alternative is terrifying. Lord, I pray that whatever people are going through here today, and I know some people are facing some really hard things. Lord, I pray that you would show them your glory, show them your massive power, that this idea of you being in control is not meant to terrify us, but it's meant to encourage us, that you're in control, that you are working at all things for our good and for your glory ultimately. God, I pray that you would help the trust factor to to, to increase in our lives, that, that our trust of you would sink a little bit deeper no matter what we're going through because you're the kind of God that entered our suffering and you love us dearly, that you sent your son to die for us. Father, help us as we continue to worship and celebrate your son, Jesus Christ, in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me as we sing? Read one more thing in closing. If you have any questions about what I said today, I'd be happy to chat further. In Acts 17, Luke, who wrote it, describes the Berean church, and it says, The Bereans were of more noble character, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. And I would encourage the same for you to examine every day to see if what I'm saying makes sense, it's true. If not, you push back, you confront, you challenge, you encourage. And we'll work on this doctrine together. But go in his grace, trusting that we serve a sovereign God who suffered for you. Have a great week.